Thanks, guys. So we're in the second week of our focus this year on joy in this series, Fighting for Joy, for the first several weeks. Do you guys remember the, um, the uh, memory verses from last week? 1 Thessalonians 5, 16. Be, be joyful always. It's a tough one. You know, we can't go on to the next memory verses until you get these. So hopefully by May, right? So be joyful always. Romans 12, 12a. Be joyful in hope. Okay, great. You're so fantastic, all of you. So um, th- this week, um, because there's a, so there's a lot of churches that have like a something Sunday, like 32 Sundays a year, and I am very much against that. But there are two Sundays each year where it's a something Sunday. It's a, so uh, this Sunday, the Sunday closest to the Martin Luther King holiday, um, we celebrate something like Life, Freedom, Justice Sunday. And then in, usually in October, the very beginning of November, we do um, the Sunday in memory and prayer for the persecuted church around the world. Those are the two where we like, we'll do those Sundays. And so um, since we're doing this series and we're, we talk about justice, life, or freedom here, I want to, I'm going to talk this morning about fighting for joy, specifically in relationship to the poor. And specifically, what prospects are there for joy for the poor? Now, I know for some of you, it's not, listen, it's not lost on me that some of you are sitting there saying, Nick, like on what level do you get to talk about poverty and joy? I mean, what do you know about joy? You know? Um, or it may be that you're like, I mean, have you ever really been poor? And, and the answer is no. I mean, I've only ever really been poor with hope, right? Like, my parents did a good job of making sure I was poor when I left the house, but they were always there. Right? I was always graduate school poor. I wasn't really poor, right? And so, um, so it's true that I don't have a lot of personal experience, like not being able to afford to go to a doctor or not being able to have any food when I wasn't camping. Um, and so whenever, you know, you endeavor to talk about something that you haven't had a lot of personal experience in, even, even like being in it, even if it's not part of your own life, um, there, there's always the difficulty. But here's the problem. When you think about this a little bit more, this is a difficulty for everyone, for basically everything, okay? That for almost anything we have to think about deeply, there's, there's almost always the tendency towards flippancy and towards the bigotry of low expectations, right? And so when it comes to poverty, there's always this tension, right, between falling into flippancy, like if you're not poor, or some people who fall into this are people actually who themselves came out of poverty. Because they're like, man, I beat it. I won. Shoot. People are poor. It's because they're failures, man. Right? And like, so what do we need to do is like, yeah, there needs to be jobs and stuff or whatever, but like, poverty is something you could overcome. Right? And I think that that's generally a conservative fallacy. Right? There's also the progressive fallacy of um, the bigotry of low expectations, like the poor are just dumb animals that can never rise out of anything. And if we don't, like, put food in their troughs, they're never going to make it, right? Like, they're not—you know, and, and after a while, you lose a sense of what bearing the image of God means and what people are really capable of. And if people aren't rising, there's re- there are reasons for that. And that it is—there's it, a certain amount of reverse flippancy that happens. And both are forms of bigotry, like ideas that we really shouldn't hold if we were more thoughtful, Right? And yet, um, it's important to recognize also what the Bible means by poor. 
Because what the, what the Bible means by poor is not what Karl Marx meant by poor, right? Karl Marx was like, there's like maybe 20% of the population that owns everything and everybody else works for them. And they like play all day and they get all their money just because they own stuff and everybody else has to work. And like the rest of humanity is like the workers and they're the poor. And that's not what the Bible means, okay? What the Bible means by poor is somebody who has been reduced to abject dependence on the level of begging. That's what the Bible actually means by poor. If you're like, well, well, how do you know that? Well, first of all, you know that because the Bible was written in a time where everybody was part of an agrarian society and almost everybody was just above the poverty level, okay? Like if everybody's working a family farm and you're bringing in the barley yourself and trying to raise a, you know, you, and you couldn't raise a couple of pigs because you were Jewish, right? And so you're, you're trying to raise a few sheep and maybe, you're like, everybody's just a little, I mean, just a little bit above the poverty line. And so like, that's not what the Bible means. And that's also not what the Bible means by rich. Right? Like you've maybe heard somebody say, listen, if you're going to go home tonight for dinner and you have a choice between two things of what to eat, you're rich. Now, in terms of like global proportion, that's, that's actually true. But when the Bible says the rich, that's not what the Bible means. Okay? In both cases, they're referring to a fairly small portion of people on both ends of the economic scale. One example of this in relationship to the United States is, this was a Heritage Foundation study. This is a list of the percentages of different amenities in American households, starting with refrigerator and ending with jacuzzi. And this is for all American households averaged. And this is for all households designated as poor by the United States government. So you will see a marked difference between jacuzzi ownership, 6% to 0.6%. But one of the things that's actually beautiful about the way economics functions is, is there's, at, when things are invented, they're enormously expensive and not even the middle class can afford them. And usually it's a cycle of about 12 years where things become eminently affordable, right? And so like um, 15 years ago, if you wanted to buy a laptop that was this big and fully functional and internet capable and all that kind of stuff, I mean, you couldn't, it doesn't matter how much you make, you couldn't get it. Well, you probably could 15 years ago, but 20 years ago you could, right? And now like you can go buy one at Best Buy for 350 bucks right now. Right? And so there, there, there are certain ways that, that we don't sometimes think rightly about economics and poverty. And it's, it's important that, like, we don't get too flippant about, like, how all injustices function, right? In America, virtually no one would fall under the definition poor according to the Bible. Okay? And so it's really easy to be like, well, I'm in that group and you're not. Well, be careful. Because you can be like, well, Nick, you can't talk about this. Well, I mean, if you really talk about the biblical category, none of us can talk about it. Which is, which is one of the reasons why I think— and now, what I'm going to say next is going to offend some of you that have more, like, progressivist sort of assumptions about life. But listen, we're going to preach the Gospel of Luke this year. We're going to have a lot of opportunity to offend conservative people, okay? A lot, right? Luke is like the book for that, okay? And later in my sermon, too. But one of the things I think every Christian has to resist— in a certain part of secularity right now, is what's sometimes called the philosophy of intersectionality, which is essentially this idea that, like, you only get to talk about something if you are aggrieved enough and oppressed enough to be able to talk about that, which is essentially this really interesting reversal of how people normally talk and listen, right? So generally speaking, the way the world normally plays the game of influence is if you're the boss or, like, you're the person with power and privilege, you get to talk and you don't really have to listen to anybody, right? And that's stupid. And everybody knows that's stupid, right? And so the idea is, like, you really should flip this around 
And it's really the people that are like most aggrieved, most stepped upon, most oppressed, that really have the most experience with the way things really are, and they should be disproportionately listened to. And if you're up there, then you got up there because you're probably a terrible person, and you shouldn't be listened to, right? And Christians cannot go along with that. Let me give you a couple of empirical examples. One is, is that if only the poor had written about and advocated for the poor, this is not what would have happened in the last 35 years. Global poverty of people living on less than $2 a day would not have precipitously plummeted to less than a billion people now, and people living on more than that increased exponentially. That's not what would have happened. The poor, more than a billion of the poor, would have still been in exorbitantly grinding poverty if people who weren't poor stayed out of poverty. It's a philosophy that has a good intention, but really dramatically terrible results. Another one is from an example from C.S. Lewis. Lewis said in a book one time, he said, ask yourself this question about the nature of experience and emotion and decision-making. He said, who should make the decision as to whether or not you should shoot prisoners of war? Who should make that decision? Should the guy who just charged up the hill and lost six of his closest buddies— who then when he gets to the top of the hill, the people who are machine gunning them put up their hands and say, we surrender. So they're taken into custody and now they're off limits. Should that guy decide if you can shoot those people? Or should a guy sitting in an armchair or somebody like sitting on the beach journaling, who's never been to war, has never faced this kind of thing, has never suffered this loss, has never felt this emotion. Should that person make the decision? And listen, you had better and I mean this next word in the literal sense, damned well sure that it's the guy in the armchair. Because the guy at the top of the hill is going to kill every one of those guys. And he's going to, and what's going to happen is nobody's going to surrender for the rest of the war because you know what happens if you surrender and everybody fights to the death and everything gets more brutal and all the rules get thrown out and millions of more people die. Because you're angry about your six buddies, which is to be angry about. You see, there's a lot of things in life where experience can be as blinding as it can be revealing. Experience is enormously, enormously revealing, and emotion can be enormously revealing, but it also can create all its own bigotries. Another example of this is like with men and women, right? Most people who have been around men and women very much know that there are things about women that women don't really realize about women that are really obvious to men, right? And there are things about men that are apparently not really obvious to men, that are really obvious to women, right? Should I not listen to my wife about what she sees in my life because she's a woman and she's never experienced what it's like to be a man? I mean, that would be very dumb. And further than that, if, if anybody who's been successful in all their life, and probably this is true for everybody, whether they've been successful at all, um, most of the most valuable things— that have been said to you, to correct you, maybe even to humiliate you, but to make you better and to see the, light, the world the way it is, to see yourself the way you are, has often come from people who are more privileged and of higher position than you. Your parents, your professors, your bosses, your elders. Right? You see, neither of the ways we normally listen and don't listen to people are right. They're both laws where what we need is virtue. Right? The people in charge not listening to anybody else, that's, a, that's some kind of weird law. It's not virtue, right? There's all kinds of people have all kinds of things to contribute if you just open your mind and open your heart and open your ears, right? People on the bottom, like, they have stuff to say. 
that needs to be heard, but they don't have the only stuff that needs to be said, right? What you need, the virtue we're looking for here is humility, right? That when you put other people before yourself, of all stratas, of all kinds, of all experiences, you ask them what they fear on your behalf, you ask them to give you candor, you open your heart and mind to them, you believe that they're speaking to you for your good, you engage in real relationships, and everyone can grow. It's one of the reasons why seeking a really actually diverse church is so fundamentally important. It's not out of sentimentality. And it's not just because we've heard the saying enough times that diver- there's strength in diversity, right? There's, diversity has a lot of liabilities to it, but it has a few very big strengths if it is conditioned by humility and love. Right? This, this last week as I was preparing for this, um, Lloyd and I and Mike are reading this book called um, Jesus and the Disinherited by Howard Thurman. It's written in 49. Thurman's work was very influential for Martin Luther King Jr. Um, <clears throat> and now Thurman is very different than me. He's black. He grew up poor. He became a very well-known scholar. He's a scholar at Boston University. Traveled all over the world. He was in India when it was transitioning power from Britain. He had been to Germany right after the war. I mean, just incredibly diverse and interesting life. Now, I didn't listen to him because he was like more aggrieved than me. I listened to him because he was a brilliant scholar who I probably couldn't ha- didn't have the grades to study with if he was still alive. Right? It was his abject intellectual experience of superiority to me that made me really want to read his book. And man, can he write like, he wrote a book you know how long that book is? A hundred pages. Who writes a hundred page books? It's amazing, right? And the reason why I needed him was, was, not, was not because of any particular aspect of diversity. I needed somebody whose imagination had been completely alternatively shaped than mine, right? And so by giving myself to that, like, I, it was so helpful, right? And that's why as Christians— we have to embrace something as hard as we have to deny something. So as much as I believe that we have to deny that some kind of directive experience is at all necessary to be able to speak about something, we as seriously need to affirm that without direct contact, we will never escape flippancy and bigotry, ever. Right? Thurman talks about this a good bit in his book, where he's, he talks—and you've heard me saying this for years— that like, for human beings, <clears throat> they have to actually be together to overcome—and here's one of the reasons for that. Human beings are decently good at empathy if you are right in front of them, okay? That's why—that's why there's so many special interest groups in Washington. Because if you cry about the thing that's important to you, we'll forget about the cost to the other 350 million Americans to pay for the thing you want. Because you're the person right in front of us that's telling you us you have a problem, and of course we want to do something about it. And so the—so like— the treason of empathy is, is that I don't feel empathy for, you know, 320 million other people because I feel empathy for you right now because you're right in front of me. But what that also means is this. If we want to feel the real product of sympathy through human empathy, the people we want to interrelate to, the people we need to love, have to be in our lives physically and spatially. Right? That's why we go on mission trips. That's why we have— the reading program at Orchard Ridge. That's the reason why we've structured our staffing and a lot of things we do to try to grow in multi-ethnicity. It's one of the reasons why we have two Latino churches that meet in this room. Listen, I don't know if you know this, but both Latino churches meet in here now in the sanctuary because this is the best room to meet in, which means this. If we grow big enough where we need three services, we're out of luck because <laughs> I've given this church that doesn't own our building permission to meet here like right after 12. 
at like one. So we can't have a service then because we're not moving them for us. And that's important because they have to be here. Do you understand? We can't just give them money across town, help them build a building. They've got to be right here. You've got to talk to them. And so here's the thing. Their kids are going to the youth group. Our kids are going to youth group together. We need that. Do you understand? And, but we need that all through the church. So as much as we have to deny some of the bigotries about new laws about who can talk and who can't, we need to grow in the virtue of humility so everybody can talk and everybody learns to listen. And the only way we can do that in practice is by practicing the virtues of direct contact, of being there. Okay, now. <clears throat> One of the passages that is most well known for its relationship to the poor is this one in Luke 6, 20 to 26. It says this. Jesus, looking at his disciples, said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil. Because of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their fathers treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. So in this passage, it doesn't say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the, theirs is the kingdom of God. That's what Matthew 5 says. Luke 6 says, he says, blessed are the poor, not in spirit. And it doesn't just say, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. It says the negative too. It says, woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. Now, what is the point of, of that section of Jesus' teaching, right? I'm going to tell you, and it may not sound right for a minute. You're going to have to let me argue for it for a couple of minutes. Jesus is telling all of his disciples to rejoice, to find joy in what he's teaching them about reality, because Jesus is telling them that he, as God incarnate, that God does not play the world's games. And most of what crushes the poor is the world's games. He doesn't play. He doesn't play those games. And he's never going to play those games. Right? So one way to look at it is this. Is that Jesus does not accept the world's games. He doesn't accept the games of worldliness. He doesn't ex accept the, like, the structures of human society that are rooted in all kinds of different sorts of sins and that are set up in certain kinds of ways, and he just doesn't play that, right? And because those games, the odds are all on the house, and they stretch out— they stretch out the advantage of the rich, and they tend to press down the opportunities of the poor. And <clears throat> this is a worldliness doctrine, not a poverty doctrine. Now, this is what I mean by that. If we take Jesus saying, the poor get the kingdom of, of God and no one else, and woe to the rich, for you've already received your comfort, right? We take that as, an, as absolute— and we exclude all other scripture and say, these two verses must interpret all of scripture and none of scripture can interpret them, right? 
then that's the poverty doctrine. That means you need to give away all your money, right? And there is a place in Luke's gospel where somebody comes to Jesus and seems like a good man, and he's wealthy, and Jesus says, give, give everything you have away, and then follow me, and you'll have treasure in heaven, right? But actually, just a couple chapters later, I think it might actually be the very next chapter, he runs into this guy named Zacchaeus, who it says is a very wealthy man, and is a very wealthy man because he's a tax collector. He's a chief tax collector. And in the middle of a meal, he's sort of come to Jesus, and he stands up, he says, look, Lord, as of this moment, I'm going to give away half of all my wealth, and if I've cheated anybody, I'm going to pay them back four times what I cheated them, right? Now, I don't know if you've ever heard about people who have like $10 billion who decide to give like half of their money away. And you're kind of like, that's cool. That's cool. But man, you're still really rich. You know? There's only so much moral posturing you can do because it's probably relative to what you've got. You know what I mean? Your sacrifice. And so Zacchaeus is a really wealthy guy, and he's going to give away half of it, which is really great. But it's—I mean, he's still going to be a really wealthy guy. He's, he's not going to sell his house, okay? And Jesus' response to that is, Salvation has come to this house today because this man, too, is the son of Abraham, right? In, um, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Jesus is talking to Timothy, this pastor, and he says, Listen, you need to learn to be content with enough money to buy food and to have shelter in that, because if, if you can't be content with that— the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Like it says, there's all kinds of traps, spiritual traps in the love of money. And you, if you're going to be pastor, you've got to be free of that stuff. And then he, a couple verses later, he says, now this is what you are to command the rich in this world. Okay, so this is literally what the Christian church is taught to command to those who are rich, right? Sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. Is that what the verse says? That's not what the verse says. No, it says this. It says, command them not to be arrogant and to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Right? And what is hope the root of our access to? Joy. Remember that? Instead, let them put their hope in God, who provides richly—get it? Rich. They should put their hope in God, who provides richly— To everyone—he's a provider for the rich and the poor—for their enjoyment. You see? So God is not a worshiper of poverty. In fact, in many places in the Bible, God is revealing that poverty is itself an inherent human tragedy and the result of sin. Not necessarily the sin of the poor person in particular, but the result of sin in the world, in creation, and how it affects things, okay? God's, God's not interested in making everybody poor. He gives to all people richly for their enjoyment. But he says to the rich, but that they need to be profoundly generous. Because that is one of the relationships they're meant to have with the poor, but also it's one of the ways that they fight and overcome the deceitfulness of wealth. So that they aren't arrogant and they don't put their hope in it. If you understand that and how these other passages of the Bible relate to each other, what you begin to see— is that the Bible is not teaching actually a doctrine of poverty, but it's teaching a doctrine about worldliness. And that is, because, because otherwise, how do you deal with the fact that in Matthew 5 it says, blessed are the poor in spirit and not the poor? 
says the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And is that a contradiction, right? Well, Jesus probably gave this sermon like 57 times in 24 different ways. How how are those both right? And you see, if what Jesus is saying is he's saying, look, I don't play the world's games, then they're both right. They're both right. Because if the, if the games we play in worldliness are essentially like, I use my wealth, like, you know, I'll take you on this fishing trip, and then your company's going to buy this stuff for me, and if I give the endowment, then can't my kid get into that school? And if we do this, and I'm going to buy that for such and such, and right? And pretty people get ahead, and good old boys get ahead, and it's all relational giving, and right? Those are all games being played, and they're all bad for the poor. They're all methods by which the poor just like can't figure out how to get their their foot on the rung of an opportunity, right? But they're also all worldly games, right? And so the poor in spirit, those who recognize that they receive everything from God and that God is not invested in those games and that God does not play the games of the world, become spiritually increasingly independent of all the games the world plays. Because think about it. Are the poor more important than everybody else? Does God love them more? Right? One of the doctrines of liberation theology is that God is preferentially on the side of the poor against others. Is that true? Well, it's one of those statements that's both true and false. Right? He's not preferentially on the side of the poor just to be preferentially on the side of the poor. God sees the world as it really is, and the world as it really is tends to be preferentially not on the side of the poor. And in order to even things out, to get real justice, he's got to be on the side of the poor practically all the time. And so, he's preferentially on the side of the poor practically most of the time because we won't be. Right? We, if we play the world's game, then we pick our side. And if we say, I'm invested in these world, in the world's games, it turns out, according to King Jesus, the house goes bankrupt in the end, not the players. And when the world stacks things in the favor, we get into all those stacks and we get all our personal investments of personal selfhood and connection and, and attitude and respect and all that, all fortified in that. When God blows that thing up, and we weren't poor in spirit, and we got invested in that thing, it's both good news for the poor, and it's good news for us if we're poor in spirit. But if we're not, everything we've got blows up too. And and here's why that is. The poor are not just the one that God has to naturally be on their side in order to try to do stuff in the world for them, but it's, it's, it's more than that, right? God is on the side of the poor practically in a lot of cases, because he is on his own side, okay? There's this, there's this place where um, the Israelites are going to fight against Jericho, right? And the angel of the Lord shows up, and he's the leader of the Lord's armies, and, and, um, and Joshua says, are you for me or for my enemies, right? And what does the angel say? Neither one. Neither one. But as the commander of the Lord's armies, I'm here, right? He, now, he's going to destroy Jericho, The angel of the Lord is going to rip the walls down, and Jericho is going to come to an end, right? But but this leader of the Lord's army, this angel or this pre-incarnate Christ, whatever this figure is, he's not on Joshua's side, (laughs) right? 
There's a nation of wicked men who are going to bring God's judgment on a nation of wicked men, and he has a job to do. And heaven is not on anybody's side automatically. Heaven is on God's side, and God is on God's side. And so he is on the side of justice, and he's on the side of beauty. He's on the side of goodness, and honorability, and nobility. And he doesn't play the world's games, right? And when he comes, and when he brings his kingdom, he brings his kingdom with that attitude, okay? And that's basically just going to be good for the poor, right? You see, it's, it's almost ancillary. He comes in and he blows up the house, and all the gamblers that owe the house, that's good news for them. Not because they were part of the, like, federal bus that took down the casino that wiped out their debts, but because they ended up on the right side because the one who came for justice affected that which ended up benefiting them. And so Matthew 5 and Luke 6 and 1 Timothy 5, and they're all true because of the supremacy of God himself and his belief in his own glory and the truths of his own kingdom. Do you understand? And his kingdom, because of the games the world plays, when he undoes them, they are good news for the poor. And when he undoes them, they are good news for the poor in spirit. And when he undoes them, they are bad news for the worldly and the proud who put their hope in wealth that is so uncertain. You see? And I want you to see one more thing in that passage. I don't know if you know this, there's only one place in the entire Bible where you are commanded to rejoice and leap for joy. There's only one place. There's a place in Malachi where when redemption comes, we'd be like a calf let out of the stall that leaps. That's it, man. That's the closest thing. This is the only place in the Bible that says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Like you're totally free. The day where they destroy your good name and they kick you out of your job and they hate your guts and they spit on your reputation. He said, Leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, because you don't have any reward here anymore. Right? I don't know if you notice this. If you read the Bible, Jesus does not trust both and reward seeking. He doesn't trust it at all. Right? Go and pray in your closet, not out in front of people. When you give, give it anonymously. Not so that don't banner the thing, right? Don't be like, well, we'll give a gift to this, and then we'll get it on the news, and then we'll be nice to those people, but people will like us. Jesus, like, basically hates that kind of moral signaling. He's like, okay, if people like you, great, but that's all the reward you get, man. It's over. Right? He doesn't trust that because he isn't playing the worldliness and godliness game. Right? And because there's something about when your only trust is in heaven, that the God of justice will bring about his own ends, whether you're poor or poor of spirit. Does that make sense? And that, if we know it deep, will make us leap for joy. The second thing to talk about is um, that Jesus doesn't accept the degradation of poverty in or for you. So if, if you're poor, that would be true for you. And what you'll find is that degradation is relatively on every person. Um, Thurman talks about two kinds of heavenly-mindedness. Um, and you've heard me talk about this before. 
um, there's the kind of heavenly mindedness that Karl Marx hated, right? So it's the kind of heavenly mindedness like where you're poor and we don't want you to cause any trouble, right? And so we talk about this great heaven that you'll go to someday and it'll be so nice and you'll be in like everlasting drug-induced bliss and you'll play instruments that you—whatever, you, right? And Marx hated that because he thought that people needed to stand up for themselves and that people don't stand up for themselves if they're anesthetized, you know, by something that's like, oh, well, it'll be nice so we can just get by now. We'll just try to get by now. Um, and that is an abominable kind of heavenly-mindedness. That has nothing to do with what the Bible teaches about heavenly-mindedness. Except for that it does teach it'll be heaven and it'll be great. The other kind of heavenly-mindedness is this. Everything that you truly own, that is truly yours, is a gift of God. Either in Christ or in reward or whatever. Everything's from God. You are a beggar. You're poor of spirit or poor or both. Okay? And all of that is kept for you in God. He has all of it. Nothing can take that from him. Nobody can get at those accounts. Okay? And that includes your identity, your life, your future, your security, everything. Okay? So what that means is you don't have to be afraid of anything which could produce an incredible amount of courage and an appropriate amount of troublemaking. You see, how you are heavenly-minded and how you believe the gospel determines what kind of heavenly-minded— Listen, a unheavenly-minded person is not more good We don't need people who aren't heavenly-minded so we can have some earthly good. We need people who are rightly heavenly-minded so they can be of some earthly good. One of the passages that Thurman said is is really good news for the poor is this passage in Luke 12. It says this, There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. And what you've whispered in the ear of the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the rooftops. That's true for the poorest person on planet Earth. It's also true of every boardroom, every insider trade, every flesh trafficking deal. Nothing will be hidden in the end, right? Which should also sober us personally, as well as recognize that there's a justice in that that will come out. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body, and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after killing the body, has the power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. This is the very next verses. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet one of them, not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Now look at this next phrase. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows, I tell you. Whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, Thurman says that those verses, and I'm going to come back to them in a minute, are profoundly good news for the poor for, for, the, for this reason. That there are three, what he calls, hounds of hell that enter the life of the poor incredibly powerfully and that the poor are greatly prone to give themselves to out of necessity that completely destroy their personhood, their personality, and their personal creativity. Okay. He talks a lot about 
the development of personal identity and creativity. And if you read a good bit of Martin Luther King's writings, he, a lot of that he got from Thurman. He talks a lot about the development of human creativity and imagination and how poverty and degradation and segregation crushed those things in the human spirit. So I want to read from you some words by Thurman. And these are not direct quotations. What I've done is I've cobbled together quotations from the whole chapter on fear, the whole chapter on, on dishonesty, and the whole chapter on hatred. But I want you to get a sense from him of, of why he says these things function this way and how Jesus demands that the poor, all those who have their backs up against the wall, and every human come out of these things. So fear. The underprivileged in any society are the victims of a perpetual war of nerves. This fills their lives with anxiety. And when acute panic and rage and in being driven by this fear, he is humiliated as a coward in his own estimation and in the estimation of his friends and family. This fear, which served originally as a safety device, a kind of protective mechanism for the weak, has finally become death for the self. The power that saves turns executioner. To defer death, he yields all claims to personal significance beyond the little world in which he lives. All hope and ambition dies, and the very self is weakened corroded. There remains only the elemental will to live and to accept life on the terms that are available. The fear of man is a basic denial of the integrity of his very life, and it lifts that fear of man to a place of preeminence that belongs to God and God alone. He who fears is literally delivered to destruction. Dishonesty. <clears throat> the weak have ever survived— only by fooling the strong. The poor are taught, often very young, that the price of physical existence is that he is willing to perjure his own soul. Such deception tends to destroy whatever sense of ethical value an individual possesses. It is a simple fact of psychology that if a man calls a lie the truth, he tampers dangerously with his value judgments. Jesus called attention to this fact in one of his most revealing utterances. A house divided against itself cannot stand. He suggested that if they continued to say that he was casting out devils by the power of the devil, and they knew this was not the case, that they would commit the unpardonable sin. That is to say, if a man continues to call a good thing bad, he will eventually lose his sense of moral distinction altogether. The penalty of deception is to become a deception. A man who lies habitually becomes a lie. And it is increasingly impossible for him to know when he is lying and when he is not. Jesus takes one of the major defense mechanisms of the disinherited away from them. And what does he give them in its place? What does he substitute for hypocrisy? Sincerity. Hatred. I'm going to do a little bit more on hatred because, well, it's 2018 and we're in America. And he had a lot to say about it. The weak are judged to be insignificant in the eyes of the strong. If they accept the judgment of the strong, it destroys their very sense of self. Because they are despised, they are tempted to despise themselves. And if they reject that judgment, hatred is the most obvious servant to devise a way to rebuild, step by perilous step, the foundation for individual significance. So from the intensity of their necessity, they declare through hatred their right to exist. Hatred makes this profound contribution to the life of the disinherited. 
because it establishes a ground for self-realization hammered out of the raw materials of the injustice itself. This hatred provides a tremendous source of dynamic energy placed at the disposal of the individual's needs and ends. And as hatred serves him with a dimension of self-realization, the illusion of righteousness is easy to create. Often, there are but thin lines between bitterness, hatred, self-realization, defiance, and righteous indignation. Thus, hatred becomes a defiance against moral disintegration. It will immunize the weak from a loss of moral self-respect as they do to the enemy what is demanded of them in the successful prosecution of their war. To this absolute need among the poor and weak, Jesus says, unthinkably, love your enemies, that you may be the children of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. Jesus knows that despite all the positive psychological attributes of hatred, hatred destroys finally the core of the life of the hater himself. While it burns with the white heat, it seems to have a positive dynamic effect, but at last it turns to ash, and it guarantees a final isolation of a man from his fellows. It blinds the individual to all values of worth, even as they apply to himself and his neighbor. Hatred bears deadly and bitter fruit. It is blind and undiscriminating. Once hatred is released, it cannot be confined to the offenders alone. Above and beyond all, all else, hatred tends to dry up the springs of creative thought in the life of the hater himself, so that his resourcefulness becomes completely focused on the negative aspects of his environment. Jesus rejected hatred. It was not because he lacked the vitality. He lacked the belief in its vitality or its strength. It was not because he lacked the incentive to hate himself. Jesus rejected hatred because it meant the death of the mind the death of the spirit, the death of communion with his father. You see, what Thurman is saying, the joy for the poor is in these passages, is Jesus' good news that you need to fear the one who can kill you and throw you into hell. And you need to know the love of that one, that he sees you and he knows you, and he loves you, and he's able to keep what belongs to you truly until that day. Everything that's not part of the, ga the games of worldliness, and those things can never be taken from you, and his eyes can never be taken off of you. And if you fear the one you should fear, and if you know the love of that one, you will fear nothing. You will have courage in the face of fear. You will have sincerity in the face of dishonesty. And you will have love in the face of hatred. But he says in the end, the cost of this, how do you enter into it? And he said, the cost of entering into it is you have to tell the truth. You have to tell the truth about you. You have to tell the truth about your neighbor. You have to tell the truth mainly about God and his goodness and his salvation. You have to confess him and not deny him. And even if that costs you everything, he says later or really earlier, that in that day you'll be able to rejoice and leap for joy. 
So I want to go through six quick applications. I'm not really going to preach them, but I want you to have them for your small group discussion times. One is, is that the application of this is believe the gospel, especially if you're poor. Everybody has to believe the gospel. Or you will—I don't care what socioeconomic class you're in. If you don't believe the gospel, the draw and the deceitfulness of wealth, the draw of hatred, dishonesty, and fear, these things are common to humanity, and they seek you out, and you're prone to them, and, and you need to believe the gospel. You need to be free. You need to be ready to have your back up against the wall, to have nothing left, and to be able to rejoice in that day and leap for joy because you know of your reward in heaven and because— you know that's how they treated the prophets before you. You also have to be the right kind of heavenly-minded. I just preached on that. Hopefully you remember what I said three minutes ago. Think about what kind of heavenly-minded are you? Three, read the Bible on poverty. Look, it's like 100—it's somewhere between 75 and 120 verses. It's easy to do on a search. If you can't, do a search. Email me. I'll send you the list. It'll take about a week worth of quiet times of 35 to 45 minutes to go through all of them. You'll basically know what the Bible says about poverty. It's very enlightening. It's not what you think, probably. But it's really worth studying. Four is, it's healthy to be troubled about your wealth if you have some. Not because God hates assets, but because wealth has a myriad of internally functioning deceptions in the human heart that lead to pride, that lead to a love of money, that lead to a misvaluing of all kinds of things, well, literally a misvaluing of everything, right? There's some statement about people who love money that they're the kind of people who know the price of everything and the value of nothing. That's the kind of person it'll turn you into. Five is that love requires contact. If, we're go- if, the, if the rich and the poor are going to love each other, people of different races are going to love each other, if people of different ages are going to love each other, this, this cannot be done over Facebook, okay? It, it, this is not the sort of thing that you can do across town. You can't even do it in partnerships. You have to do it in direct human contact relationships. Human beings, for good or ill, are the sort of creatures who love people in our immediate presence and objectify people who are not in our immediate presence, and that's how we are. We're really good in our tribe. We're really great, really terrible as world citizens. And so if you really want to love any sort of person, and we're supposed to love all sorts of persons, they've got to be right there with you, or they're just an idea. And ideas about people without their presence usually take about 10 minutes to become caricatures. I would throw Republicans and Democrats into that one too. And last, consider what the poor really require. It's very easy to, to feel a sentiment towards the poor that we should be generous and go, well, I'm just going to do this. I'm going to give money to panhandlers. I'm going to—and most of the stuff that your sentiment will drive you to do hurts the poor. Um, we know an awful lot about what empowers the poor. A lot of people spend their whole lives studying this and working on it. And what the poor generally need is relationship, friendship, somebody willing to tell them the truth, and— that truth can be affirming truths, because a lot of poor people have never had their greatness called out of them, and sometimes they're corrected truths, right? And usually employment. Globally speaking, at least, one of the biggest problems the poor have is just access to markets and access to a decent job of any kind. And so I believe Christians should be very much behind, like, anything that opens non-cronyist markets— where there are poor people. 
And here's what that's going to mean. We are going to lose jobs here in America. That's what it's going to mean. I remember talking to an Indian friend who said um, it was so great that some, some of his neighbors and people around him had gotten call center jobs. And I said, he, and then he said, how much are you guys going to be able to give this year? And I was going to be like, well, a lot less because my church had about 160 people in call centers and those jobs all got outsourced to India. <laughs> but we're going to do the best we can. And he, he's like, oh, because he realized from his perspective, the cost. But that's the way it works. But it's the, it's the most just way for us to lose our money. For other people to have access to work and to be able to do that work and gain wealth for themselves so that we can't get as much wealth as we get for the hours that we work. That's what the result's going to be. It distributes wealth in a way that's much more just than socialism. And it also means that when we participate globally in trying to help the poor, doing it developmentally is incredibly important. Not just doing charity. In all of our partnerships at High Point, where we work with mission organizations or with local organizations, they're all designed for economic development and gospel discipleship. Whether it's Hands of Hope in the DR, whether it's groups like Hope International that do um, loaning, special loans for development and the, and the discipleship of entrepreneurs, or whether it's work we do locally. Because what we know about people is because we're made in God's image and we're made to be creative and we're made to be productive, nobody can find their destiny and personal creativity apart from productivity. And therefore, inviting people out of the state of unemployment is fundamental to empowering them. And there's a theological reason for that. In fact, all the reasons are theological. So thinking about that more deeply, there's tons of people at High Point who would love to think with you more deeply about how you engage because we're called to do that. If we have any kind of wealth at all, we're called to do that. Father, will you please help us all to receive the message that the gospel is good news to the poor? Help us to be incredibly sobered by the fact that when you come back, your kingdom is going to be for the pious poor. Meaning that all the games we play, to the extent to which we participate in the games of the world, all that's going to be lost. And the only thing that's gained for us, the only thing that's right, the only thing that's true, that's beautiful, that's full of faith, is for us to be like the prophets that came before us, who are willing to stand outside of the games of the world and say, that's not right. That's not why God created it this way. That's not what God has called us to. Would you give us the courage in the face of fear, the sincerity in the face of dishonesty, and the love in the face of hatred? Would you give us that much joy in hope that even the worst moments of what happened to the prophets, if that happens to us, that we would rejoice in that day and leap for joy.